open us up to, to seek to understand, to love, to be humble, to understand. So we continue on. We see also that the word right now, that in uh, Acts 8.3, it says, And Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so Paul wasn't targeting just a specific church, but he was targeting the whole church, right? He wasn't targeting people that, were di- that had died. He was targeting those who were alive. And so he was going from their houses trying to, to find them and throw them in prison. So we see that the church is used for all those that are alive. Um, but the third usage of, of the word church in the New Testament is by far the most common and is what we're going to be talking about the remainder of our time. But the church is used to refer to a specific and local congregation of Christians within a specific geographical location, right? It talks about the church at Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, the church of Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church at Laodicea, the church of, at Colossae, like the, church in, the churches in Galatia. And so we see that the church is used to, over and over and over again to talk about a specific group of people that meet in a specific location. It's a gathering of God's people. It's not just... Christians that say, well, I guess we'll get together once a year, right? It's a frequent, consistent gathering. People that, Christians that only got together once a year could not rightly be called a church. They wouldn't be obeying Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is so important. What it says, it says when we gather together, that we encourage each other. That if we don't gather together, we can become deceived. We become hard-hearted. We become drawn away. And that by gathering together, we stir up one another to good works, to love, to remembering who we are and what Christ has done for us, to being sent out in this world. And so if we neglect that, we neglect what it means for us to be the church. The Bible knows no idea of solitary Christianity. The concept is foreign to it. Franklin Fry says, A person who says he believes in God but never goes to church is like one who says he believes in education but never goes to school. John Wesley says, There is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. Jeffrey King says, The New Testament knows nothing of freelance Christianity. It is the corporate witness of the redeemed fellowship that is used by the Spirit of God. Man, we desperately need this in our culture because we really don't believe it. We don't believe it if our actions are told. How do we relate to the church? Oftentimes we relate to church as something that we can give or take. It's an option for us. And we don't understand that it is God's plan to redeem his saints, to change them and to redeem this world. And it's through gathering together. It's through, through stirring up one another for good works, for love. That God does this. Third, we see that the church isn't simply a redeemed people that are gathered together, but that it's also centered around something, centered around God's word and his ordinances. Um, One of the central marks that defines the church from a country club, from uh, another set of meaning, is its insistence on the scriptures. Is that God's word is what is lifted high. It is held in esteem. And not simply God's word, but it's also the ordinances. It's also the proper institution of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. And we see this. We see this at the initiation of the church in Acts. 
Acts 2.42, Peter's just preached the first sermon. 3,000 people have come to know Christ, and he starts talking about what identifies the church. Right, And this is our theme as a church, the faith fellowship. This is our theme. This is what guides us and defines us as a church. He says in Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves, gave themselves entirely to, wholeheartedly to, committed themselves to, the apostles' teachings, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so, as the early church met, they devoted themselves to these things. Right? They would read the Old Testament. They would listen to the apostles' instructions. Every time they would come together and they would take the Lord's Supper, remembering the sacrifice that he gave for them. This is essentially what marks the church and sets the church as the church, is its insistence and its holding up high God's word and his ordinances. Not only this, but fourth, it, it's a, a redeemed people gathered together with centered around God's word and his ordinances, but it also has a structured leadership. The church wasn't this unorganized movement that all of a sudden, hundreds of years later, you know, was forced into structure. It's something that began with a structured leadership that God put in place. First and foremost, God is the head. God is the leader. So he himself rules and leads his church through delegating through his appointed leaders. And we see it. We see it with the apostles. Christ gave his church and he entrusted it to his disciples. Um, Acts 2, 3,000 people are saved and they submitted, that the church submitted underneath the apostles' leadership. We see then in Acts 6, right, that the Holy Spirit led in this. The Holy Spirit led in deacons being appointed to serve the body. We see Acts and Acts as Paul goes and he's planting churches that he appoints elders. Acts fourteen twenty three it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Again, uh, Titus, Titus 1.5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, says Paul, so that you might put what, remain, <clears throat> what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is essential and at the very foundation of when God is planting and, and spreading his church is that he puts a structured and appointed and, and ordained leaders in elders, deacons. This is something, when uh, when I first came down to Florida, I worked for a ministry called K-Life. Uh, K-Life is an awesome organization. They're focused on discipleship. So we would raise up young adult leaders, and we would go into schools, high schools, middle schools, and we would help youth uh, to come and to have a safe place where they could talk about Christ. You know, they structure from, you know, a club, one to, uh, one to many, one to few, and one to one. And so we would pour in. But one of the things that I found after, you know, serving there for a couple years is that we would have youth that would come to K-Life, but they and their family saw no need for the church. Right? They would just come to K-Life, and when they would, we would ask them about it, they would say, well, we, we don't really need a church. K-Life is, is our church. You know, this is where we get our, our spiritual nourishment. This is where we get poured into. And so it made me start thinking about the nature of the church, you know, like, well, what is a church? Um, and, and K-Life is called a parachurch alongside the church. It's an aid to the church. It's a branch of the church rather than the church. And we came back and urged these, these youth saying, no, you don't understand. You need to be in the church. K-Life is helpful for you, but the church is essential for you. Right? Why? Why? Ultimately, because we didn't have elders that shepherded the families, that cared for them, that labored over them, that loved them, 
right? They came and chose, they, they, they didn't have any oversight. There was nobody that those families nor those children were actually biblically commanded to submit to, to honor, right? There was no ordinances. There were no Lord's Supper or baptism. And so while it was a parachurch, it wasn't the church. While K-Life was helpful for them and aided them, it wasn't essential for them as the church is essential. God has appointed and, and rules in and through his church. Fifth, we see that the church is not simply uh, a redeemed, gathered people centered on God's word with structured leadership, but its purpose. The church's purpose is to glorify God. It exists for it. The church isn't gathered together for entertainment. It's not gathered around political reform or even social justice, although those are noble aims. The church exists for the glory of God, exists to praise and hold high his worth, his value. God's glory is the praise of his infinite worth. We give glory to something or someone when we demonstrate their worth or value, right? You give glory to your work when you choose to give hours and hours and hours of your life to it. You show that it's worthy to you, that it matters to you because you're willing to give up something. You're willing to give up at least 40 out, likely 40 hours of your week. You give glory to your family when you not only spend time, but you think about them, you spend energy on them, you prioritize them. Right? You give them glory in a sense. You show that they're worth something, that they are, have value. Right? We show that entertainment has value to us when we spend tons of money on it. When we devote the best times of our day to being entertained, we give glory to it. The only problem is that all of these things, if they're the ultimate ends, are not worthy of glory. They'll constantly leave us wanting more, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's entertainment. If they're given soul glory, they're held up high, they will leave us wanting. Only God is worthy. Only God is, is deserving of infinite praise and glory due his name. And this is what the church is called to give to him. What are you glorifying in your life? What are you lifting high? What are you worshiping? What are you valuing? What are you making sacrifices for? We're called to glorify, to to d- demonstrate the infinite worth of Christ. Romans fifteen five through 7 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He talks about, as we have been welcomed, as God has embraced us and accepted us and loved us, so we are to do to one another that we might demonstrate the goodness of God, that we might give over our prejudices, our selfishness, and we might love others deeply as Christ has loved us. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. We gather here together and we gather in community and life groups that we might encourage one another to see the greatness and the value of Jesus. That Christ is more valuable and worth more than anything else in this world. He's worth more than our lives. He's worth more than our family. He's worth more than our entertainment. 
He's worth more than our safety. He's worth more than our happiness. Christ is worthy. And this is why we exist. This is what we proclaim with our lives. And as we gather together is that he is better than anything. And what we want is him. First and foremost. This is why we exist. The church isn't a business. It's not a holy building. It's not a place for entertainment, a club to be a member at. It's not a place for moral education. No, the church is God's people gathered together around his word and ordinances with a structured leadership for the glory of his name. This is what it means for us to be a local church. So where was the church originated? How was it founded? If you look uh, in Matthew 16, Jesus talks about how he builds his church. So context for Matthew 16, Jesus has just uh, fed 4,000. And he is now warning uh, the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of their teaching. And they go now to Caesarea Philippi. And as they're going to Caesarea Philippi, they get there and Jesus asks, he says, Who do people say that I am? They turn and they reply, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, you know, or some people say that you're, uh, you're Elijah, or some people say that you're um, Jeremiah. Jesus says, okay, you know, that's nice. And he turns them, and he turns the question on its head, and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say the Christ is? And they turn, and Peter is the bold one. He speaks out. And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns and he, he says to Peter, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. There's a lot to talk about in this passage, but what I want to focus on is the origination, the origination of the church and its continuation. Its origin and its continuation. Jesus says that he will build his church on the foundation. What's the foundation? What is this rock that Christ says he will build his church on? Right? Roman Catholicism says that it's Peter, and at this moment that Christ makes Peter the Pope. And he says that Peter is the one upon whom the church is built. Now, obviously, I don't think we don't agree. We think that what the rock is, this rock that he's building upon, is the statement that Peter said, right? And the statement that Peter said is that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent to save God's people. He is the incarnate living son of God who's come to redeem God's broken creation. And we see it in the book of Acts. We see this truth bear forth that there are lots of places and times where Peter's absent, but the church is still built. Why? The church is still built because the church embraces and submits and honors the truth that Christ is the Messiah, that he is the incarnate son of God. And so wherever this rock, wherever the rock, the truth of who God is, is believed, is embraced, God's church advances. God's church is built, and nothing will stand against it. But before we, before we denounce wholeheartedly that the apostles have nothing to do with this, we need to look, Ephesians 2, 19-21 talks about that actually the apostles do have a role, that God actually does build his church, not simply on that statement, but also through his people. 
Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What we see here is that God uses the truth of who he is through his people to build his church. God used the apostles, God used the prophets, and God continually uses us to build his church. We are the means, the conduit through which God speaks, through which God loves, through which God reaches out to this world that he might build his church. We don't passively sit back and say, God, build your church as I do nothing. God will build his church, whether through us or in spite of us. God will build his church because he was faithful and nothing can stop him. His church will advance. The question is, will we be used to build it? Will we be faithful and allow him to use us as conduits to build his church, to love, to spread the gospel, to reach out to those that don't know him? I want us to see, first and foremost, this is such a myth in our culture, such a lie that man invented the church. We see clearly God is the one that built his church. God is the one that initiated his church. The church is God's idea, not man's. The Peter and the disciples didn't later on fabricate the church and said the church was at the very heartbeat of the purpose of God, of why he came, was to build his church, was to love his church, was to give himself for his church. God, God created his church. God not only created his church, but God sustains his church, right? We see here, he says, I will build my church. So when Jesus is talking here in Matthew 16, the church is not built. The church does not currently exist. He says, I will build, being future. And so the church doesn't come into existence until Acts 2. The church begins and its origin is in Acts 2. Why? Because there was no church except that Christ would buy his church, purchase it with his blood. And so it's only after the cross did the church come into existence. It's only after the Holy Spirit had been given that his people could be drawn together in unity. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches, 3,000 come to know Christ, and the church is formed. The Holy Spirit binds them together in unity. People that were so diverse, people that didn't even speak the same language, people that had different backgrounds, different parents, different social status, God binds together in unity a people that praise his name, that give him honor and glory. Such power is poured forth in the Holy Spirit. Let it be once more. This church is known as a people that are united in power because of deep love for one another. He builds his church. Nothing will stand against it. And, and that, just soak that in, at least for me, man. That's such an encouraging thing to know. Even if we, and, and history bears it out, if you go back and you look at history of the movement of Christianity, if you look at Islam, Islam is, has been, is stated. It stays in one geographic location. Christianity is constantly moving. It's almost circled the entire globe now. Why? It's because the Holy Spirit is constantly building his church. And he moves from a people that are entitled and prideful and he finds people that are hungry and desperate. And so while there might be the church shrinking in one geographical location, it's exploding in another because God will build his church and he is hungry and he was fine with people that are desperate, a people that long for him, 
a people that want him. And it's through this and, and this attitude of humility, of desperation, that God builds his church. He will sustain it. He will complete it. So, the application for this, as we close, is do we rightly understand that God is the initiator, the sustainer, the builder of his church? Do you understand the church's identity, or how do we relate to it? All of us, all of us at times, have a tendency to relate to the church in a different way than what God calls it to be. Whether we think the church is a building that we just come to and we have to act on special behavior around it, whether we, whether we think that the church is just an optional thing that we really don't need it and we're just doing fine on ourselves, we believe the lie of our individualistic culture that we don't need other people, we don't need uh, God's gathered community. All of us believe different things. How is it that Christ is calling you to relate to his church based on who his church is? What ways is God encouraging you by realizing that not only is the truth that God will build his church encouraging, but we are his church. God will finish what he starts in us. As God builds his church, it means that he will build us. God will will finish the work that he has begun in each one of us, and that brings great encouragement and great hope when we get stuck in places in our life, when it seems like there's a sin that we can't beat, when it seems like there's areas in our life that just aren't fixed, it brings great hope to know that Christ not only will complete and finish building his church, but that we are his church and he will finish in building and completing us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you that you love her, that you gave yourself up for her. I pray, God, that we wouldn't selfishly use your church, that we wouldn't ignore your church, that we wouldn't abandon your church, that we wouldn't have preference or favoritism in your church, but that we would instead give ourselves for your people. We would give ourselves for each other as you gave yourself for us. Father, just give us unity. I pray for humility and and selflessness, God, um, in me as well as, as in all of your people, God. We love you, Christ, and we give you all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.